This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another wonderful episode continuing our mini-series on mindfulness and spirituality. And this week's guest, I must say, probably takes the cake, certainly when it comes to mindfulness and experiences with what is classically identified with Eastern spirituality. Dober Cohn is British in origin, but literally has traveled the world, spending seven years in Eastern countries, India, Thailand, etc., and has engaged in some of the most extreme practices that world has to offer, including long-standing silence retreats, fasting, meditation, and so much more. Of course, his odyssey brought Dove Bear back to his Jewish roots, and he has, along with it, discovered the deep spiritual reservoirs within his own heritage, and now seeks to restore them for so many young Jews in our generation. I was not able to interview Dove Bear on my actual Israel trip live, but we did connect remotely via video conference and append it right on to that series. Once again, a reminder to please continue sharing and also to follow us on Instagram at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully. Really appreciate it, and we will follow you back. And now to our conversation with spiritual guru of sorts, traveler and seeker, Dove Bear Cohn. We are here with Dove Bear Cohen, a senior lecturer and self-proclaimed chief experience officer at Asia Torah, a person with a fascinating personal background, uh, someone I've heard a lot about, was almost able to meet in person on my uh, my live podcast tour in Israel, uh, didn't quite work out, so we are making it up now, doing it remotely, but I hope we will uh, create the same wonderful connection. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Very excited to connect, finally. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit, uh, Doe Bear, about where you're from, uh, what your background was like. I know that it was a colorful one mm-hmm. and a varied one. Uh, give us your background story. Well, I was born in England and I went to Manchester University. I don't know if you've ever been to England. It's not actually a very nice place. Pretty <laughs> cold and, and the people are pretty cold and gray. And I grew up kind of traditional Jewish. I knew I was Jewish. Uh, um, I never ate pig in my life. That was my Jewish thing I did. And we lit Hanukkah candles and had Pesach. And that was about it, really. And then I studied philosophy at Manchester University. And it was really a bit of a waste of time. I wasn't particularly in a mature uh, phase of life, if we could say that. And I, I was into the clubbing scene. England's got a very good clubbing scene. And I dabbled in a bit of DJing. Not E... What is it? EDM. It wasn't EDM. We had actual vinyl, which was actually much cooler in the day. So I used to play hard house and trance and drum and bass. Do you have drum and bass in America? Uh, I'm not. I'm not familiar, but we may. <laughs> it's a very London kind of dance sound. I started asking people a very, very, very deep and profound and important question, which was, "How are you?" And I wrote down the five top answers to the question, how are you? And they were, can't complain, getting by, hanging in there, not too bad, and could be worse. And I was like, this is really a tragedy that people are not too bad, because that means they're bad, but not too bad. And I was like, it's very rare to find a person who's truly inspired and empowered and passionate and living a, a joyful life. So I was like, I don't want to be one of those people who are living a mediocre life. And so I want to work out what's actually the point. What am I doing here? Am I meant to achieve anything as I'm alive? Rather than just getting by and 
like not judging anyone, God forbid. People are very nice people and give charity and go have dinner parties and go to the cinema. They're very nice people. But there's got to be more to life than this. And my grandfather died when he was 100 years old. Wow. And he said to me before he died, you don't want to live an I should have life. I was like, what do you mean, grandfather? <laughs> he said, well, when you get to 90, you don't have so much to look forward to. So you start looking back on your life and, you know, you regret things. I, I should have been to the gym. I should have traveled more. I should have spent more time with my kids, less time at work. So he said, you can live your life now so that when you get to 90 and looking back on your life, not regretting anything, but really thinking, amazing, I lived an amazing life. So I was like, you know what? In the last year of university, I stopped doing all the uh, negative extracurricular activities that I was involved in. And I started doing lots of martial arts and meditation. I actually went to all of my lectures in the last year, <laughs> which is amazing. Go figure. <laughs> and I started studying lots of Indian and Eastern philosophy, Buddhism and Hinduism. And it really spoke to me because the Judaism I grew up with certainly didn't have any spiritual component to it. It was a very nice traditional thing. And my education at school, no one ever says to an 11-year-old at school, how do you deal with disappointment? Or how do you deal with when school? I would imagine the education system should educate people how to deal with life. And it clearly doesn't. So the wisdom of the Eastern sages really spoke to me, especially Bruce Lee, whose real name was Baruch Leibowitz. Not true. <laughs> but he said some things, for example, don't pray for an easy life, pray for the strength to deal with a difficult life. Pray for the strength to endure a difficult life, which is great wisdom. You really got it from Pekiavot, which says, Lefum Sara Agra, according to the effort, so is the reward, so is the growth. I was like, great, I'm going to find out what, why am I alive? And I looked at Western culture, and that clearly wasn't an answer because everyone's depressed and divorced and hates their jobs. That's a real big overgeneralization, but that's what I saw. And I started asking people over 80-year-olds. started asking over 80-year-olds, what do you believe? What's the purpose of life? What am I meant to be achieving? And I very quickly saw that most people, although they were nice people and raised their families and had good jobs, they never actually stopped to ask, what's the point? Why am I doing it? Do you know the number one answer for an 85-year-old if you say, do you believe in life after death? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> or I hope not. Or I'm not sure. And I'm thinking to myself, this, this isn't so far around the corner for you, my friend. You should probably work out, like, what do, you, what do you believe? So I developed the three questions of living a well-thought-out life, which are, number one, what do you believe? Most people don't know what they believe. Number two, why do you believe that? If you, let's say you believe you have a soul. Why do you believe you have a soul? So most people believe they have a soul just because their parents told them or society told them or... Maybe they experience something in meditation or they hope they have a soul or, or their life is meaningless. They create God and souls just to have a bit of meaning in their life or they're afraid of what happens after death, so they create a soul. So most people's belief system is just based on nothing so rational. So the third question was, how do you know you're right? What's, what's your evidence? There's a big difference between faith and knowledge. Faith is you believe something because just you hope it's true or you want it to be true. Knowledge is I got evidence, practical, rational, empirical evidence. So I was like, I'm going to work out what life's about. So the Western culture certainly wasn't the answer. And Judaism that I knew wasn't the answer either. Uh, I lived in an area quite close to Golders Green where all the black hat people used to live. And they didn't seem like the friendliest or most spiritual people. Uh, to be fair, and Judaism didn't see it seemed to be like these people believed that there was an angry man in the sky who has a list of rules that I have to do, otherwise, he's going to punish me, which didn't seem so inspiring or enlightening to me. Uh, Baruch Hashem, I found out that we don't believe that there's an angry man in the sky. <laughs> if an atheist says to me, I don't believe in God, I say, Baruch Hashem, the God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. But I used to go to Shulam Yom Kippur. And the prayer book on Yom Kippur, and I get a prayer book on most days, is just saying how great God is and how bad I am. 
And on the surface level, it's like, God, you're great and mighty and awesome and powerful. And I'm thinking, God, you're so insecure that you need me to tell you how great you are the whole time. Uh, because clearly at that, at that point, I didn't realize that we don't believe we're separate from God. We believe that this Jewish soul, the soul is a piece of God. So when I'm praying and I'm saying, God, you're so great, I'm not talking to some separate guy in the sky. I'm saying I'm part of something that's great and that's who I want to be. But I didn't have that deeper understanding. So I decided, having watched all these martial arts films, that all spiritual wisdom is in the East. So I set off on my journey. <laughs> and I decided in six years in the East just to work out what life is all about. Did you know up front that you would go for a long period or it started as a shorter time and it kept no. I actually, I decided I'm going to travel the world for seven years, partly based on a film with Brad Pitt called Seven Years in Quebec. <laughs> I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that, but there you go. My life is basically based on Karate Kid, Rocky Four, and Seven Years in Tibet. <laughs> <laughs> so you set off uh, to the east, and where did you go first? I went to Sri Lanka, small island off the coast of India. I was there for four months and I went to a village where they hadn't really met white people before. And I worked in an orphanage, which was a very powerful experience for me because it taught me many things. Firstly, it showed me how privileged my upbringing was um, and therefore how much I have and how much my whole life up until that point had been completely self-centered. And it was about my relationships and my education and my partying and my sport and my fun when you work with kids they had polio lots of the kids were dragging themselves on the floor their the muscles in their legs hadn't grown one meal a day some of them had parents but the parents were alcoholic i realized i have so much and therefore i have lots so much to give and i was running trips until november i ran trips to thailand and india and sri lanka and peru lots of the people who came on the trips felt really guilty that they had a privileged upbringing and I say to them, you don't need to feel guilty. You didn't do anything wrong, but you should feel responsible. And if you don't feel responsible, then you should feel guilty. Mm. So I was like, right. I, I think life is much more about what I can give to other people rather than all about myself. And I personally just felt like a much bigger being when my being wasn't all just about my small little ego self. When I care about other people and give to other people, and obviously, this is a key Jewish idea that we're here in, for Tikkun Olam to, to bring God consciousness into the world and help other people. Rabbi Desla talks a lot about there are givers and takers. So what are you? Are you, are you, are you someone who's egotistical and take for yourself or you focus on giving? And the other thing I learned from the orphans where I realized that they were much happier than most of my friends. Hmm. And the reason was they fully appreciated every little thing. They were sharing one pencil between about five kids. So one day I walked into the town. I walked out of the mountains into the town and I bought them each a pencil. And it was really like the best day of their life. You couldn't believe they were looking at these pencils as if I'd given them a thousand dollar check. They just couldn't believe it. They were like, I have my own pencil. And I realized that my friends and I always focus on, I wish I had a better phone, a better car, a better body, better girlfriend, better computer, better. We always want something more. In the West, we've been brainwashed to believe that the more I have in the external physical world, the happier I'll be. But that's clearly not true. It's just that people define, if someone says my son's very successful, that means that they got a big car and they make lots of money. It doesn't matter that their kids are doing drugs and their wife hates them. And <laughs> Successful means your, your financial situation. Um, so that's why people are not necessarily very happy most of the time because we're relying on the external world to be a certain way for us to be happy. But Judaism teaches that Simcha has got nothing to do with the external world. It's got to do with your attitude to life. And these kids had an incredible attitude to life. Full, like fully, fully really appreciated everything. They used to have one meal a day and some days we would get them another meal. And the other meal was also just rice and potatoes or maybe cauliflower. And they couldn't believe it. It was amazing. And everything we did, we played games with them. They just really appreciated it. The word for Jew in Hebrew is Yehudi, which comes from the root Lohadot, which means to thank, to appreciate, to acknowledge. 
And the first thing we say when we wake up in the morning is like Jewish sages tapped into this powerful insight that gratitude is really one of the major keys to living a, a peaceful and joyful life. So that's what I learned from the orphans in Sri Lanka. They were cool. So when and, and perhaps why did you leave there? I left there because I got a job in a small village in Thailand. I wanted to go to Thailand. A few reasons I wanted to do martial arts. And also I was very into Buddhism at the time. So whilst I was living in Sri Lanka, I went to the temple. I went to the temple for Shachris Mincha and Marev. Although it wasn't called that. I, mean, I know all the Buddhist chants still. So we did lots of chanting. It was very powerful to get into like a trance-like state of chanting these spiritual ideas. Um, so I went to Thailand and I found out there was a 10-day silent meditation retreat at the beginning of every month in a temple. So I decided to do that. Actually, I did it quite a few times. <laughs> it was really great. So it was 10 days of complete silence, no reading, no writing, no listening to music. No phones, no TV, no distractions, basically. Um, and we, we basically each had a prison cell, basically, and slept on a wooden bed with a wooden pillow. The monk gave me, the, the monk gave me a block of wood and said, this is a wooden pillow. And I was like, no, that's a block of wood. And he was like, no, wooden pillow. I was like, yeah, whatever. It's all in your mind. <laughs> so the bell would go at four o'clock in the morning and we'd get out of bed and or a bucket of cold water as a shower. And we spend the next 16 hours doing anapanasati, which means consciousness of in and out breathing. So breathing consciously to bring our minds into the present moment, which is extremely powerful because our sages teach us in Pikhi Avoy, it says, Ezehu Gibor, who is a master, a koveshit yitzral, the person who deals with their mind. Really our whole experience of existence is just what's going on in our mind. And your thoughts create your emotions. So from the second you wake up to the second you go to sleep, you've got a commentary in your head, like judging yourself and judging other people and being anxious, doubt, fear, anger, jealousy, hatred, envy, whatever it is. So if you can't control your mind, then it's very difficult to have any control over your life and over your feelings. And most people are just controlled by external circumstances. So if we miss the bus, we get frustrated. If someone likes our Facebook profile photo, we feel good about ourselves. If really, the external world is controlling our whole thought and feeling and experience of existence. But when you learn to control your mind, you can start learning to become a master of your own existence and not let the external world uh, dictate or define you. In Hebrew, it's called hishtavut. Hishtavut means equanimity, which, which is, I'm not emotionally detached, but I'm not going to let you define how I'm going to feel. I'm going to use what you say, either praise or insult, as a way, as feedback and as a way to grow. But I'm not going to be offended or insulted by it. So you, you spent a good amount of time in Thailand and doing some really <laughs> profound spiritual and meditative work. How long did that go on for? And, and what were you doing when you, weren't, when you were talking? <laughs> Who were you talking to and what were you doing? Uh, I was there for a year and a half and I, I worked in a university. In the, uh, I lived in this small village, but I got a job in the university and I taught English and Buddhism. I was, I was teaching Buddhism to young secular Buddhists, trying to inspire them and show them the depth and beauty of Buddhism. My career in outreach began. Was that a successful enterprise? Yeah, actually, lots of people were very inspired. Apparently. And so you did that for a year and a half and... <clears throat> By my count, we're still only up to around two years yes. of the so six, of the Brad small, Pitt, uh, near seven. <laughs> I went to a small island off the coast of Korea, Jeju Island, for a year and a half. Jeju? Uh, Jeju Island. An unbelievable... Okay, yeah, could, can't, couldn't get the Jew out of you. <laughs> yeah. It was a beautiful paradise island with a, a volcano in the middle. An extinct one is the most holy mountain in Korea. Beautiful volcano with a crystal clear lake in the middle, which is a sacred lake. It's the most sacred lake in Korea. I only found that out when I was kind of swimming in it. 
like, get out of the lake. I was like, <laughs> Stop doing cannonballs. <laughs> yeah. That was fun. I taught English and I started my martial arts training. I did Taekwondo. And my martial- sure that you actually hadn't done martial arts. Yeah, I ended up not doing it. I was going to do kickboxing in Thailand and I don't know. I played football instead. Soccer. I soccer. played soccer. Soccer, man. And yeah, I got quite into the football there because I'm English, you know. And also those high kickboxing people are crazy. You do not want to step into a ring with them. Huh. When you're a, a soft, middle-class English Jewish boy. They've been kicking banana trees since like, the age of three. So they have no, ner- have no nerves in their shins or in their arms. So it's basically like me- being hit with metal, which wasn't so fun. So I started training properly on Jeju Island. And my master was six foot seven and the former national high school champion of Korea in Taekwondo. And a very big alcoholic, which is a bad combination. <laughs> so it was kind of crazy training. Had to jump off walls and jump through hoops and smash through boards with a, I broke most of my fingers and toes and run up the mountain for four hours and then train in the snow. Have you seen Kill Bill 2? I have not. So it was that. But in that, they've got a coffin scene there where she has to punch us way out of a coffin. But we didn't do that, but all the other training was, was, was powerful and very painful training. I got a black belt in a year and two months. Wow. It takes about five years in England because you don't train as much and they don't beat you up as much. But I really enjoyed it. Got me ready for yeshiva life. <laughs> and I played for the Presbyterian Church football team, soccer team. And I did two Jewish things. One was I never ate pig. I've never eaten pig in my whole life. I've eaten other, I ate snake and things. Anyway, so I played for the Presbyterian Church football team and I was a top scorer. And then there was an island-wide church tournament. And the final was being played in, they had a World Cup stadium. They hosted one of the World Cups. And so they were very excited, but one of the rules were you could only be in the team if you went to church every week. You have to go to church every Sunday and then you could be in the team. And I had my Sandy Koufax moment, and I was like, I'm not, I don't, I'm Jewish, I don't go to church. I didn't play, and they didn't win. So throughout all this time, you still self-identified as Jewish? Yeah, basically, but didn't do anything, but I didn't, that was my thing. I don't need pig. Did that seem like a strange contradiction to you, that you were practicing Buddhism, and yet holding strong to one random prohibition, ritual? (laughs) And uh, I think, yeah, I don't think so because I grew up very, very, very strongly Jewishly identified. I had a bar mitzvah. I didn't put on tefillin. We had Friday night dinner together as a family, uh, and then I went clubbing afterwards. Uh, I was very, most of my friends were Jewish. I went actually came to Israel for three months when I was eighteen, and I, I had a very, very, very strongly traditional Jewishly identified upbringing. And yet you were practicing as a Buddhist, so. Yeah, because Judaism was a nice traditional cultural thing that my family did, but not an actual valid spiritual path to enlightenment. So that you were kind of operating on multiple tracks at once in some sense. Yeah. So you were in Korea for for a while, it sounds like a year and and two months, and was that your final destination or? uh, I went to India for a year then. Okay, why not? <laughs> yeah, I always wanted to go to India. And when I arrived in India, I went to uh, McLeod Ganj, which is the home of the Tibetan people in exile. It's where the Dalai Lama lives. And I got there, and I'm not exactly sure why, but I decided to fast for seven days. I saw someone doing it, basically. And I had two small cups of water a day. It wasn't a full fast. Two cups of water and a small slice of papaya for some of the days. And I was just really, really hungry (laughs) for seven days. Uh, But it was very important for self-control. It says in the Shema, Don't just go after your heart and your eyes. An animal, a dog, can't control itself. If it's hungry and there's food, it has to eat. 
as a human doesn't have to do something that it feels like doing if it doesn't want to if it has self-control <laughs> so really our key to mastery in life is to be able to not do things that feel really 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 good if they're not good for us and to do things that don't feel good at all if we know that they're good for us yeah, certain the self-control is a very important support. thing to be able to build up in our lives right. actually that's Ages teacher says in Mesilla Shisharim, Chavasilavavas, the Rambah everywhere says that Taiva, craving, craving the physical world, really is the thing that's cutting us off from our soul to a very big degree. Judaism doesn't say physicality is bad at all. Actually, it's a beautiful balance, I noticed. The East really teaches that to be spiritual, you have to get rid of the physical world, go and sit in the cave, don't get married, fast. And the West is eat all you like, smoke what you like, do whatever you like. So Judaism, this is why Israel's in the middle. Judaism says, no, you've got to get a balance between physical and spiritual. So you can eat good food, just make sure it's kosher and make sure you say a bracha and eat it consciously and say a blessing at the end. And physical intimacy is a very high spiritual thing, but only with the right person at the right time for the right reasons in the right way. It could be really abused. But if done in the right, the physicality of the world, if done in a conscious and right way, is can be very spiritual. Uh, but I didn't know that yet, so I did the whole get away from the physical world thing for it, which actually helps. To be fair. Yeah, I guess you can go to an extreme to try to then be able to modulate. Yeah, Yom Kippur is like a joke now. <laughs> Even without papaya and and water. Even. <laughs> So uh, you were in India and, and, and trying out some of those practices. Did you visit with the Dalai Lama? On the fourth day of my fast, I heard that the Dalai Lama was three-hour walk up the mountain. And he was going to be meeting people and giving a class. So I was like, great. I walked up the mountain on no food. And I just had these, a little bit of water. And I got there and there were like 3,000 Tibetan people there. And there was a whole festival and they were offering me food and I couldn't have the food. I wasn't in the best mood. But I thought at least I'll get to meet the Dalai Lama and hear some words of wisdom. And basically he came, he didn't meet anyone one-on-one -on -one, and he gave a speech for 45 minutes in Tibetan. Oh. <laughs> so I, I, it wasn't the best mood I've ever been in. I walked back down the, the mountain, but I had a kind of enlightenment moment. It was... I basically, I realized that my suffering comes from my mind not accepting the situation. Most complaining is, look, this is a situation. And I was like, I wish it wasn't. It's not fair. I hate this. And I was like, hold on a second. Those thoughts aren't helping me. So I'm not going to have those thoughts anymore. And I'm just going to appreciate walking down the mountain. And it was a very powerful moment where I I'd known this for a long time, but really where I could start choosing what thoughts I was going to make significant. Because our whole experience of life is really only whatever thought you're making significant. So I stopped making useless and negative thoughts significant and decided to hang on to the positive ones and let go of the negative ones. It seems like a very sensible thing to do, to be fair. So obviously at some point you um, left the, the East and... Um, well, I lived, in, I lived in Nepal and in China. I trained in Shaolin in China, which is the world capital of Kung Fu. My master was crazy. He used to smack the back of our legs with a bamboo stick, uh, which really hurt. Who would win, him or the Korean guy? Uh, the Korean guy would just kill him. Really? Yeah. Why? The Korean guy was about twice as big as him, and his legs were like the most dangerous weapon I've ever seen. Darling Kung Fu is really like very beautiful animal forms and stick forms, but it's a bit, you know, it's a bit like dancing. In terms of an actual fighting art, it's not necessarily the most direct one. Then I lived on, in Japan for a year and a half after that and trained in Aikido and did a pilgrimage 1,200 kilometers around a Japanese island. It took 40 days. Work. That would be by foot, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, by foot. It was very powerful. 30 kilometers a day, 88 Buddhist temples, which is actually very 
challenging because the most beautiful and serene place to build a temple is on top of a mountain. (laughs) (laughs) This was not a flat surface walk. It was not so flat. Uh, Very, very powerful experience. Uh, And lots of people would invite me into their house and give me food because it's a famous pilgrimage, so they know that you're a pilgrim. Uh, It's like the, uh, the East's version of the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, 100%. So I did that, did Aikido, and that was it, six years in Asia. And you graduated. So what, where did you, did you know it was time to go back? Were you looking to go back to the West? Was, did, you, uh, did you perceive this all along as like a, a phase, albeit a long phase, and that you were going to then return and live sort of, quote, a normal you know, pedestrian Western life, just with a greater degree of consciousness? Or did you all along think that you were, you know, really setting yourself on a completely different trajectory. Completely different. I had no interest in the Western world whatsoever. I didn't know where I'd end up, but it was definitely not in a job in London. Right. I left Asia and I was going to go to South America. I wanted to canoe down the Amazon. Sure. Who does it really? <laughs> Once the longest river in the world is there, you might as well canoe down. Might as well. What do you think it was? Well, fasting and not speaking. If, if you, you know, just double down. <laughs> You know, we're, we're going to die. We really are just going to die. So we better live before we do die. Yeah. My grandfather died when he was 100. I said, and he says, you don't want to live uh, life with regrets. So I was yeah. like, I, I don't want to regret not canoeing down the Amazon. Yeah. Anyway, I stopped in Israel on my way. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, yeah. <laughs> and I got to Israel and got brainwashed and here i am with a beard and a sit-sit thank you so much for having me bye <laughs> so i got to israel i was going to stay for three weeks and visit some family and friends someone said to me why don't you study judaism seeing as you're jewish and now that you've studied and taught hinduism and buddhism and i said because judaism is naive male chauvinistic outdated not very spiritual, religious people don't seem very spiritual. The Torah in English with no commentaries really doesn't seem like the most spiritual book ever written. Someone actually once said to me, let's say you took the name God out of the Torah and put Dov Bear instead. You probably wouldn't like Dov Bear that much. He gets angry and jealous, but thank God it doesn't say Dov Bear and it doesn't even say God. It says Yud and He and Vav and He. You have to understand what that means. So I was open-minded enough to start learning. And I realized that all the reasons I didn't like Judaism weren't even true. (laughs) Just because I had a very superficial understanding about what Judaism taught. And I was like, Judaism says this. And it's like, well, it actually doesn't say that. And you do this. And it's like, "Mm." it's very powerful for me. Just, Just getting a whole new perspective on what Judaism taught. And I went to Yeshua. I went to Sfat first. And I went to the spiritual Yiddish. place, right? Yeah, I was like, it was the Nepal of Israel. <laughs> so I started sharing the wisdom I'd learned in the East. And everything I shared, the rabbis would either say, yeah, it says that in the Gomorrah, or, or Derech Hashem says that, or the Vilna, they'd show me where it was sourced in Torah. Or they'd refute it and say, no, that it doesn't make rational sense. That can't be true. I started seeing that all the wisdom I'd learned we have, or it didn't seem to be 100% rationally true. So then I started asking my third question, living a well-thought-out life, which was, how do you know you're right? I asked the Buddhist monks, how do you know you're right? How do you know this is actually true? And they're like, because Buddha says it is. And I'm like, but how do you know Buddha got it right? And they're like, because he's Buddha. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, and I asked Christians, Muslim, I asked everyone, how do you actually know this is true? And everyone said, because my master, or I experienced it in meditation. And I was like, no, but where's your evidence? So I started asking that question and someone said to me, go to Aisha Torah. They'll know. So I went to Aish and I walked in there and I said, how do you know that it's true? And they said, we have lots of evidence that there's no way a human being could have written the Torah. And I was a little bit skeptical. And there's something in philosophy called confirmation bias. Absolutely. Which means you find evidence for what you want to believe and you ignore evidence for what you don't. 
I had a very, very strong confirmation bias for it not to be true. I wanted to go to South America. <laughs> and I just didn't want to be a religious Jew. And there were lots of things in the Torah that didn't match my Western secular moral value system. Which you still retained on some level? Uh, yeah, I guess. So. Just like, yeah. Like things like death penalty and sacrifices. And like really weird things. Those are weird things. Until you understand the spiritual thing behind it. The Western moral secular value system doesn't take souls into account. Whereas the whole Torah is all about a guidebook for how to be a soul. So, for example, euthanasia. I was going to tell a bad joke about euthanasia being children in India. But there you go, I told it. So euthanasia, to help someone die when they're in extreme pain and loss of dignity, seems like the most compassionate thing you could possibly do. That's when you only take the body and the mind into consideration. If there's a soul as well, for all we know, that soul needed to be around for another few days to say one more blessing, do one more mitzvah, whatever it is, but we're not taking the soul into account. So actually to help someone pass on before their time seems compassionate, but might not actually be the best thing for them. And it's the same with all, everything in the Torah. If you're not taking spirituality and souls into account, there are some things that don't seem the most compassionate thing. Anyway, I started learning, came to age. So they gave me all this evidence and I'd done philosophy at university. I was 29 years old at this point. So I wasn't like a naive 19 year old looking for meaning. So they gave me the evidence and I, uh, I started to argue for about six months because I really didn't want it to be true. I took the evidence and I posted it on lots of atheist forums. And I said to them, I need you to help me refute this evidence because I don't want to be a religious Jew. And no one gave me any good, solid reputation. In the end, they were like, yeah, it's a coincidence. So was like, this would be the most statistically astronomical coincidence that ever happened there's just not a coincidence there's things in the Torah that no human could know so after fighting it for a long time I was like okay most of the evidence is much much more likely like beyond a reasonable doubt that there's no way a human being wrote this document so I started learning and so I had this double thing of rationally and empirically with evidence it made a lot of sense but also spiritually it was very very empowering and enlightening and the whole meditative tradition in the Torah and the working on your character traits and the path to self-realization and what prayer really is and so I saw it was very beautiful and deep and empowering and inspiring and also evidence seemed to point to the fact that it's actually the truth of existence which is quite important to know and do. <laughs> So I was there for three months and then I left because I thought I was being brainwashed. And I went to live in Malawi in Africa for three months just to step up, get away and get a new perspective. Um, but after three months, I came back and started learning for about 16 hours a day for about seven months. And Judaism, we don't usually do silent days. We usually do the opposite. So days where we don't stop talking. <laughs> I haven't stopped talking since. Make you up for it. Um, on Yom Kippur, lots of people don't only fast, they do a tiny dibo, they also don't speak. I actually now run three to four day silent meditation retreats, which are very, very, very powerful. I just came back from South Africa yesterday. I did a mindfulness Shabbaton. One of the things we did, we did half an hour of silence for lunch. The first half hours of lunch were in complete silence. And it was very powerful. People shared afterwards that someone said it was the first time they'd ever just really consciously sat and tasted the food and felt the texture. And someone else said they ate half as much because most people just kind of shovel food in their mouth and got the next forkful ready whilst they're talking to someone. So he just, someone said he was drinking Coke and he realized he doesn't like Coke. I mean, you're so conscious and he said, by drinking Coke, it totally drowns out the taste of the other food. You can't taste the other food. So he switched his Coke for water, and the water felt amazing and refreshing and healthy, and he could really taste his food. And someone said, this girl said that at first it was very 
awkward being silent. Very awkward sitting in a room full of people and not speaking to them. Then after a while, she realized that often she speaks to people in social situations because it would just be awkward not to. She was just she speaks and be social to cover up the awkwardness. She suddenly felt, wow, it's amazing and freeing not to have to talk to people. So for lots of people, that was a very powerful experience, just to consciously taste the full flavor and texture of their food. And then I shared, this goes for every area of our life. Most people never experience life. We're all so caught up in mind and thinking and judging and not being present. If you just be present to life a little bit, you get a much more flavorsome and texture-filled experience of existence. So you were doing all the studying, and at, at some point I would imagine you transitioned to kind of being more of a teacher. And you know, Were there any road bumps along the way? And, and what did you, how did you end up developing into what you wanted to ultimately become, so to speak, within the Jewish community? Um, I guess I've always been a teacher of some sort. I taught martial arts, I taught English in Asia. I like teaching. I just found the subject I was most passionate about teaching, I guess. But I Basically, after seven years in yeshiva, as you can probably tell, I'm not so good at just sitting and learning. So there's something called the Israel National Trail, Shvil Israel. Sure. It's from Lebanese border to Elat. Yep. About a thousand kilometers. So I had some free time, so I walked it. it. took 40 days to walk the trail. It was amazing, 19 days in the desert, and I raised money for orphanages on the way. And it really took that time to cement in my belief system and my connection to Israel. So I finished the trail and I made Aliyah. And I don't know, I didn't think I decided I want to be a rabbi. For me, I did the whole smicha rabbi thing just to learn Torah, not because I wanted to be called a rabbi. And in fact, I find it a bit embarrassing on my level of knowledge to be called a rabbi. <laughs> I'm not a, what I think a rabbi. When I think of rabbi, it's not me. So you started teaching at age, you started running retreats. It sounds like you've done a lot of traveling. and yeah. I just started telling my story a bit. And getting paid for it. So I was like, oh, now I can get paid. <laughs> now I know why God sent me to the East so I can support my family. And did you get married at some point along this way? I did about a year and a half after I connected and chose the path I met my wife. And I do have the best ever story about how someone met their wife. Okay, I'm ready. It's too long. It's chapter 13 of my book. But most people say don't build up the story too much because it will be a letdown when you tell it, but it would never be a letdown, even if I built it up. Oh, what a tease. Oh, my goodness. Can you give us a 30-second synopsis? Yes, chapter 13 in my book. (laughs) Okay, I like the promotion. Um, And was your wife from from an Eastern background? So She's South African, and she's a yoga teacher and energy healer, and she met the Dalai Lama when he came to South Africa. I was like... I'm a bald shuva, returning to Judaism. How am I ever going to find a woman for me? And then Hashem was like, here's the perfect woman for you. And she even got to meet the Dalai Lama and not just listen to a Tibetan lecture. She actually gave him a bunch of flowers, which I'm a bit jealous about. Unbelievable. So you've been teaching now for quite a few years, I guess. And what are some of the areas that you like to focus on? It sounds like you've done a lot of travel with people and different meditation retreats and you mentioned the Justify organization where you took a lot of people on, you know, Westerners on social justice oriented trips. Give me a taste of some of the things you've done over the, over the years since you've been in Israel post-study. Uh, well, it's not post-study. I've insisted every job I have that I get to learn for at least three hours a day. When I was working for Justify, I learned a whole morning, say I learned for four hours a day. At the moment, I've got two hours learning in my contract and then I learn for at least two hours at home. I feel learning Torah is food for your, my soul. So I, I don't know. I see lots of people who stop learning and they just start teaching. But it means that teaching isn't necessarily coming from the deepest place anymore. We've got to keep working on ourselves. Uh, so it's not post-learning, but I generally like to teach kind of self-mastery, personal development, meditation, mindfulness. 
and completely redefine Jewish belief and practice. And we don't believe in an angry man in the sky and, and mitzvahs aren't burdensome obligations that we have to do to appease the angry man in the sky and just completely kind of redefine Judaism in a much healthier way. Judaism in general needs a much better PR team because 40% of practicing Buddhists in America are actually Jewish. Wow. Because they just don't know that Judaism has what they're looking for because it doesn't seem, on the surface level, it really doesn't seem that it does. So I'm trying to revolutionize the way people see Judaism and Torah and God. Do you find that certain types of people connect to your teaching and, and others just don't plug into it? Just given kind of the specific track that you've been on and the way that you experience the world? I, th I actually think it's very universal, the message. Everyone wants to be happy and everyone has to deal with their mind every day. There's a kind of a human condition and I just got to see it very clearly by traveling a lot. So I speak to lawyers and Harvard scientists and I speak to college kids and I speak to spiritual kids. I'm not going to walk into some campus thing and be like, let's light incense and cross our legs behind our heads. And, you know. But everyone wants to know how to be happy and tools, practical tools for living a healthy, happy, conscious, meaningful life. So I find it's quite a universal message. And also because of my background, I, you know, football, rugby player, dance music, DJ, clubbing. Right. It wasn't all, uh, it wasn't all silent meditation and, uh, and fasting. Definitely not. <laughs> you mentioned a book. Tell, tell me a little bit about the book. Is it an autobiography, a memoir? Uh, what, what is your book about? Thank you for asking. The book is really lessons and insights I learned on my journey. What's it called? It's called Mastering Life. It was meant to be called Becoming a Peaceful Jewish Warrior. But apparently there were some legal problems with that. <laughs> it's called Mastering Life, a unique guidebook to Jewish enlightenment. Basically, I go through the story, but what lessons I learned in each country, especially nine countries, nine lessons, what lessons I learned in each country, how Judaism has that lesson, and like just lots of stories and insights in between, and then practical tools, how to implement that in one's everyday life. And then, of course, there's chapter 13. Chapter 13, most important about my wife. Um, but it's really not, the point isn't, oh, this is really interesting, what an amazing life he had. If someone reads the book and they're like, he had an interesting life, we would have all wasted our time. It's not meant to be, it's meant to really encourage and inspire a paradigm shift of people writing their own life story in a very conscious and, and meaningful and healthy way. Now, what are, what are some of the projects that you still would like to see uh, completed? What do you see on the horizon? Are there things you, you find that are missing that in the Jewish world or at large and that you want to tackle that you think you're positioned to address? Um, where, where do you see yourself going? given your unique background and perspective? A million things. Number one, I'd like to set up a more kind of holistic yeshiva in the countryside in Israel, where we learn Torah and halacha and martial arts and music and creation and art. Like take people and say, you don't have to leave yourself and your talents behind. You have to bring them into your life and integrate them. And lots of chesed, Thursday just going out and doing chesed and job training. It's easy to like become religious and then suddenly think, okay, how am I going to feed my family? So I want to add just a very like healthy, holistic, not overly hippie, but just a healthy way of living Judaism, kind of a self-mastery yeshiva seminary, whatever it's called. I would like to bridge the gap between different types of Jews. When I was becoming religious, my teacher said to me, if you become religious and then look down on other people, especially other Jews, and you say, oh, conservative of this and reform of this, you didn't become religious, you became self-righteous. 
more connected you are to God, the more loving and accepting and acknowledging you are. Not saying you're right and everything's okay, but at least I'm going to respect and acknowledge you. And I think there's a horrible judgment and mistrust amongst Jews. So I'd like to work on that. I'd like to work on bringing more consciousness to the day-to-day -day life of religious Jews. who are really wonderful, well-meaning people, and loving and kind and warm. Um, however, lots of us, Jewish practice seems to have become a little bit dry and intellectual. And so people are like ticking the boxes and we're doing the mitzvahs, but Rav Soloveitchik said many Jews, they don't want to pray, they want to have prayed. <laughs> it's not like we're praying passionately and it's like, okay, I, I need to daven mincha, so I daven mincha, so I, I did it. I, I fulfilled my obligation, uh, which is a shame because the whole path of Judaism is tapping into a very deep and authentic experience of existence and our souls and relationship to God. And it's very easy to be living a very, very religious life, but miss the whole experience of God consciousness. I can keep going if you like. Yeah, well, if there's any other projects that are, you know, front and center, I don't know. You know. Authentic Jewish meditation retreats, like silent, no phone, really tapping back into tasting your soul. But I'm already basically kind of doing that. Um, and I've got a few books I'd like to write. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit busy. My current book is in the process of being published. Uh, Where will people be able to get, uh, get this book? It's being distributed by Feldheim, so it will be in every Jewish bookshop in the world, I hope. And it should be on Amazon as well. And really, you should just come to Jerusalem and come to some classes and you can get it signed, copy, personally. There we go. Dove Bercon, spiritualist, fascinating life story, and uh, bringing all of those experiences and talents into the Jewish world. Mastering life, helping others master life. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.